0: What do I choose to do? Where do I want my attention to lie? And I stumbled over yoga, which I think is the most wonderful and profound thing. And probably my first experience of what we in the West might call body, mind, spirit.
1: You are listening to Double Espresso with D, with me, D Sterling. I love a great story. So in this season, I will talk to incredible people who've experienced huge, pivotal moments of real change, by choice or by circumstance. From stories of reinvention and inspiring career pivots to the dramatic shifts that happen in moments of crisis, I hope you can join us each week to hear about their fascinating and inspiring journeys. My guest today is Emma Slade former banker and now a Buddhist nun. As a successful financial analyst, Emma worked in fund management for a major bank across London, New York and Hong Kong. She travelled the world for work and managed billion-dollar accounts. The turning point came at gunpoint. She was held hostage in a hotel room in Jakarta. Emma says that at this moment her life flashed before her eyes. She thought it was the end. She felt despair. She felt she'd wasted her life and had not until that point realised how precious life is. She survived and understood that there was much more that she had to do. In this episode of The Change Sessions, Emma and I discuss her moment of change and the new journey she embarked on. Welcome, Emma Slade.
0: Nice to be here.
1: Thank you for joining me today, Emma. So you, quite some time ago, changed from art which you'd studied, and we will come back to that, and went into banking and became a successful financial analyst. Some years ago, when on business in Jakarta, you were held at gunpoint. Hmm. And dealing with the subsequent trauma of that experience and learning to recover, which took time, led you to examine your life and make some very fundamental changes. But take me to that point And the change that you felt after that in the short term?
0: So, I think if you experience that, obviously, you're going to probably think about your life, like the meaning of your life, you know, whether your life is going to end at this precise moment, whether you're going to be comfortable leaving the world, feeling you've done what you wanted to do. And so, I think, you know, in that moment, particularly in the very early stages of the, uh, being held at gunpoint, I think, you know, there was no space for pretense anymore. There's no space for kind of, oh, I've got years and years to work it out or kind of this doesn't really matter, or you know, that kind of like, well, I can do this for a while because it doesn't really matter because in the end I'll do what I really want to do. There's some kind of, you know, very, um, there's no space, you know, there's one moment left. It felt like there was one moment left and in that moment I had to think, is this what I want my life to have been? Yeah. So I think when you come up against one of those moments, like some kind of granite mountain face, you know, it's just like a complete emergency stop. You probably do experience some pretty deep thoughts, but it took me quite a long time after that incident and that particular moment in the incident for things to uh, fully change and to materialise so It was kind of a moment.
1: What was the feeling you had at that moment? What name would you give the feeling? Was it extreme fear? Was it something else?
0: I think it was, yeah, obviously it was intense fear, absolutely intense fear, yeah. And kind of not exactly regret, but some kind of thing like around that. And also really like not exactly an anger, but a kind of like, no, I don't want to die yet no, no, I still want to be alive. I do not want my life to end at this point. You know, remember, I was still pretty young, right? And so, you know, there's just like, no, I do not, I still want to be alive. You know, and so often we feel very ambiguous about being alive, don't we? We feel it's a burden, it's very difficult. It seems like something that is hard to traverse. But at that moment, it's like, no, I just want to remain alive. And yeah, so, but obviously my life was not really in my own hands at that point because it was, I didn't know what this guy was going to do. And, you know, uh, so didn't know how it was going to work out. So
1: over time, because that was a bit of a massive experience to say the very least, and and a life-changing experience in many ways and on multiple levels. Over time, you know, I guess as you rebuilt yourself and recovered, you had a great desire, I guess, to, you know, look at the deeper aspects of humanity and human life and the meaning of human life. And I know you explored yoga, meditation, Buddhism came into your life. Tell me about that.
0: I mean, I would say that that's, that sounds very impressive, like wanted to study humanity <laughs> and da, da 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 right? I mean, I think I don't think I thought about it in those terms. It was just very simple in terms of for my life, the time I have, the path forward, you know, what do I want to do with that time and how to be peaceful and feel that I've made a contribution and I haven't been a purely selfish being. And so it was a very small project just for me. It wasn't like to study the whole of humanity or, you know, it was You know, I've been through this thing. It's totally changed my priorities. It's also given me this sense that being alive is not to be taken for granted. It's like some kind of incredible thing. And on that basis, now, what do I choose to do? Where do I want my attention to lie? And I stumbled over yoga, which I think is the most wonderful and profound thing. And probably my first experience of what we in the West might call body mind. Spirit, You know, that sense of right. something really holistic, that sense of um, something beyond surface activity or surface possessions mm-hmm. and a sense of stillness and profound states of being. So I have a great uh, gratitude for yoga because I think it if that hadn't come in, you, you know, it could have been harder to know what to do with those wishes those aspirations for seeking and wanting to ask deeper questions if yoga hadn't come in and kind of fed that inquiry you know I guess I could have got a bit disillusioned a bit nihilistic or I don't know what you know because when you let something go like I was letting a lot of things go um was that a struggle
1: to let those things go
0: no 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 it wasn't at all because of Jakarta I'd kind of seen right through them Right. You know, it was actually pretty easy to drop them. But when you let something go, which takes courage and you give yourself a space in which for something else to appear. And I was just really lucky that yoga kind of came in and held me through that period of reforming and, and questioning. If it hadn't come in, I guess I could have been a bit, I could have ended up lost or in some other way, like um, disillusioned, you know, I could have ended up cynical or bitter or so i don't know some other kind of path could have arisen right but because of with yoga with other
1: emotions right
0: yeah because of yoga i think it supported me for that in some of the changes and the inquiries you know
1: and at what point did buddhism you know enter that frame of reference for you
0: i would say that actually i was interested in buddhism right in the beginning of my life even as a right. child so that was always like a little river in the background. But, um, you know, growing up in southeast England in the 1970s, you know, like my mom gave me a book about Buddhism when I was about 11. And the house I was born into had a lying Buddha in it, which I still have now. It's on my shrine. But it wasn't easy to access stuff like it is today. There wasn't like Google and Internet and Buddhist teachings all over the place and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it had just run along like a little uh, flavor in the, you know, in the background. But with doing more profounder aspects of yoga and then doing more meditation, I think what really interested me, I got to spend some time in a Buddhist monastery in Europe, and it was the compassion practices that they did. It's a practice called Chinrezik, and you may know them, Mani, Bimihong, and that uh, Uh, The compassion practices, and it may be that I just don't know about enough about yoga, but the compassion practices really spoke to me and they were something that I hadn't felt so fully encountered in, in the yoga practices. Right. And that, for me, felt incredibly profound. I, You know, I found it just incredibly moving that these monastics in this temple were doing these compassion practices for all beings,
1: how do you translate what you just said, the words, what does it translate literally as in English?
0: What on many pemi hong? Yeah. Direct translation is quite tricky. Some people say it means the jewel in the lotus, but I think you know, with a lot of these things, it's better sometimes to think of a feeling. Like so if you yes. think about a feeling of profound non-judgmental compassion for all beings, if you think about being in the presence of that feeling, that's a better way rather than asking what is the literal interpretation, right? Because it's beyond these conceptual words.
1: Understood. Because it's a feeling, right? It's not just words or a narrative. And Emma, when you discovered that over a period of time, how did you feel about yourself? How did you feel differently about your lens on life and your engagement with the world around you?
0: I guess it just provided a much larger landscape to be part of. That's the only way I can describe it, like a feeling finally part of a greater woven fabric. Yeah, it was a way of being part of things for me.
1: So when you had that experience, you know, sometimes we can have a profound experience, which can be life-changing at a very, 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 fundamental level and then you know we're back in life we're back in the world we're back in our home yeah, uh, you know we're back yeah. in central wherever we are right and and you know hopefully we take some of it with us but it, we can get knocked around in that sort of real life situation how did that stay with you how did you help give continuity to that experience
0: yeah i guess that's where we have to hope that conditions come to support us, to keep us going, isn't it? You know, and I was lucky I, I got the opportunity to meet a lot of teachers and then eventually I got to go to Bhutan and in Bhutan I happened to, you know, stumble across this monk who turned out to be a lama and he became my teacher. So I think a lot of conditions continue to support me, you know, a little bit like a plant, you know, you might plant a a very interesting seed and soil, but if you don't continue to water it or have sunshine for it, it will die, you know, it will it's uncared for, right? So these other things need to come in to help it. And I was lucky that those things came in.
1: And do you think um, t- that meeting in Bhutan, tell me about that chance, in inverted commas, meeting with the Lerma. I mean, do you believe in chance?
0: Well, from a Buddhist point of view, obviously we have this strong feeling of karma, and that, um, of course, you know, there are patterns running endlessly through time, mm-hmm. some of which we can see, mm-hmm. some of which become obvious to us, some of which are less obvious. But um, yeah, so there, that does change, I guess, this idea of sort of random chance, you know, uh, to a little bit. So yeah, it's um, meeting him in his temple, Docchola, in Bhutan, was definitely a very, A profound moment. I mean, not dissimilar to Jakarta in the sense that it had that feeling of cutting through something that went right to the heart of everything. You know, like it just all the fluff and the daily debris kind of fell away. So it sort of had a strange strange kind of way. They both had that level of impact, you know.
1: And subsequently, um, I believe in 2014, you were ordained a Buddhist nun. In the Himalayan Kingdom of Bhutan. Obviously, that must have been a very special and unique moment for you. And it is for, I think, the wider world, frankly, because uh, you were the first and only Western woman to be ordained. And with this beautiful name, I love this name, Annie Pema Deki. Is that correctly pronounced? Or did I pronounce it? Yeah,
0: Annie means nun. Okay. Yeah, Annie just means nun. So any um, female looking like this, you can easily call Annie and you won't be wrong. You know, Pema Deki, Pema, you know, from uh, its origins in Sanskrit, Padma means lotus, you know, like Padma Sambhava or um padmasana the yoga posture right. and then deki means very blissful so very happy very uh, very joyful that kind of thing so
1: yeah. how hard is it to live up to that name
0: <laughs> well, you you know these names are given to aspire to isn't it so gosh you know i'm doing my best but failing many times you know
1: right and um you're also a mother to your wonderful son. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: what epiphany has motherhood brought to you, if there were anything that you would reference?
0: Oh, my goodness. I mean, motherhood is just like this enormous, profound, life-changing experience. I mean, it's, beyond, it's another beyond words right. thing, Definitely. isn't it? And it unfolds. You can't know how it's going to be. You can't know what this child that comes into your life is going to be like. You're not in control of it. You suddenly have this... Uh, mystery unfolding, which tests your, you know, presses your buttons and tests your assumptions because this other creature is there and they're going to, you know, you have to uh, see what comes up. You can imagine how your child would be, how you want them to be, but you're dealing with a, like dealing with clay or something, you know, it's not all in your control. <laughs> you know, they have their own thing going can on. You say that so, um, again. <laughs> <yeah. laughs> so i i mean i just think it's a very extraordinary experience and fundamentally changes your attitude to all humans i think actually just because you think i can remember just you know holding oscar as a young baby and and walking past people who were lost or homeless or clearly in trouble and just thinking you know each of them at some point you know had a mother that 100% gave birth to them and cared for them and and You know, you see that little child in everybody and, you know, it does change how you see other humans. Oh, I couldn't
1: agree more because everyone is the child of someone at the end of the day, right? Mm. Um, And and you realise that. I think, I mean, I'm the mother of two university students and and I I concur fully with what you're saying. And I think that there is something very fundamental in human life. And when it's, you know, your child, it, it puts a different lens on literally everything. You know, every aspect of life, every interconnection. How does your son engage with what he sees of you? I mean, because obviously you're his mum, so you're probably just mum to him. But has your path been a massive influence on him in in terms of his outlook and so forth?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's changed, you know. So he was with me in Bhutan when I was ordained in Zong. As you mentioned, he was with me. He wasn't in the room, but he was down the corridor. Now, he was five at that point. So he's a five-year-old in the Himalayan kingdom of Bhutan, being cared for by monks in one room. And down the corridor, his mum is being fully ordained. And I mean, not fully ordained, Getsuma vows is the highest vows that women can hold in Bhutan, but in that room, you know. And I don't think he can really remember me any other way, to be honest, And he's had moments of being very proud of me and thinking I'm super cool and unlike the other mums. And he's had moments of saying things like, you know, mama, you're never going to get a handbag like the other mums at school. And, you know, these moments are kind of like, oh, you know. So because children they have moments of really wanting to fit in and wanting you to be identical to everybody else. And then they have moments of thinking, no, it's really cool not to be identical with everyone else. And they kind of go back and forth. Just completely normal,
1: isn't it, in their childlike ecosystem as they evolve. As I often say, you know, most people spend the first half of their life trying to conform and the second half finding a path to identify the fact that they are entirely unique. How does... Referencing the handbag, if we may momentarily, you know, we are in a overconsuming universe in some respects, you know, despite all the references to the environment and what we're doing, the planet, obviously a massive theme right here, right now with COP and so forth. And, you know, more and more people who perhaps were raging consumers, uh, pairing back, recycling, buying less, buying better, uh, sharing more, upcycling what they have and so forth. What does your son see in how you live around that because obviously children are subjected to consumption aren't they out in the school uh, in the playground with their friends etc how have you managed that with him given your choices in life?
0: well obviously he's um seen me live relatively simply and um, he knows that's you know how we We've chosen to live. I mean, he, as a young boy now, he's 15 now, so he, you know, he has trainers and um, clothes and, you know, he has a huge range of things that I I don't have personally, right. you know. So I think I haven't, you know, I can't make him into some kind of mini monk. Of he's not a monk. He's a 15-year-old boy in, in the West, but he is very aware of greed in um uh, there are different states of mind, different sufferings of mind in the Buddhist uh, way of thinking about things it's a pride, jealousy, uh, desire. And one of them is greed, and it's called the hungry ghost realm because it's never satisfied. It's a state of being uh, continually unsatisfied by what you have and wanting more. And uh, he's very quick to say, you know, if I say something like, oh, you know, I'd like her something. I don't know what. He was very quick to say, you know, uh, Mum. You know, is that not the Hungry Ghost trial? You know, so he's often he teases me. <laughs> you know, he's like my little watchman. <laughs> you know it. what I mean? And uh, I think it takes time for people to become content with just uh, kind of enough, and uh, not to see that as a lesser way of living or some kind of sacrifice. To be comfortable with it, really comfortable with it, I think maybe takes time. Otherwise, people think it's like a a reduced Mm. way of living, a lesser way of living. You know what I mean. But a lot of the franticness and the distractedness and the unhappiness seems to be linked to not being able to just be peacefully content with just a simple way of living, you know. And so I, I do recommend it, but you know it's not so easy to do, maybe. Well, it's
1: an adjustment and it's a choice. And, you know, choice requires practice, right? You can make a choice in your head, but how do you live that? How do you live that each day? How do you live it when you don't feel like living it, right? It brings up all those questions. I mean, that makes me think about happiness, which we were talking about earlier. And you are the subject of a short film, Happiness, which is part of the Compassion Matters, uh, a project from the Dalai Lama Centre for Compassion. What is your personal understanding of happiness?
0: Well, it's a big question you just asked there, but maybe very simply. So we have one small prayer, yeah? May all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. So we have to ask ourselves, what causes happiness? You know? And uh, from a Buddhist point of view, happiness is caused by mentally being free of the states of suffering. So being less angry, less greedy, less proud, less jealous, the mind then becomes easier, more flexible, calmer. It's just more settled. It's not so agitated and unhappy in a way. So it's largely, at the end of the day, about reaching a state of ease, with your own mind and that means not just meditating that means being aware of how you interact with others what you do what you say whether you're causing harm it's not just about meditating it's about living in a way which means your mind at the end of the day is peaceful is not agitated is not suffering well given the um it's
1: very interesting what you say. And given the recent history of the world with COVID and the suffering that people have um, experienced, people have experienced a lot of struggle, right? Even people who've perhaps been spared extreme illness, but there's been a lot of psychological and emotional struggle. What advice would you give to people who are trying to escape the prison of themselves in a way, this prison of self, I would call it, where they are struggling, where they are um, having difficulty quietening their mind?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a really difficult question because these general statements can be quite tricky. You know, I find when I talk to one person, it's like, um, you know, you've got a basic cup of tea, but then you may need to just put a little bit of ginger in for some person or somebody you need to chamomile. So these general statements are right. tricky, I would say. First of all, you know, and from a Buddhist point of view, the root of suffering is wishing things to be other than how they are. Now, that's a big statement. Again, it's a very general statement. But I think some level of, of realizing this is the situation, you know, this is the situation with COVID and we're doing our best. This is the situation. I know it's not like, I know things aren't like they were before. Things may not be like we want them to be, but some general kind of, okay, this is the situation. This is the reality right now, you know, first of all. And I would just encourage anybody to think what really helps them and what really doesn't help them. Like I think um, I've spoken to a lot of people who've said they've stopped watching the news or they've really stepped back from media because they found it was really adding to their agitation and their worry and their fear Mm -hmm. and and they couldn't do anything about it, so it wasn't really helping anything. So I think, first of all, if you feel like something is really adding to your negative state of mind, then have the courage to limit it or step away from it, and then really look at what nourishes you, and I know it can be difficult in these situations. Not everybody has a garden, not everybody has a pet, not everybody has a family member or a good friend that they can spend time with, but uh, without judgment without thinking that those things are somehow hobbies or less valuable the the things that help us feel kind and calm and in touch and positive whatever they are please don't write them off as somehow irrelevant time or just a hobby or relaxing in that way that we used to think about those terms really see them as these really essential core things to being a an okay human and and do them and do them deliberately as much as you can within the situation you find your yourself. And I just hope everybody has something like that when they think about it, something that helps them and then uh, has the capacity to do that for whatever it is, half an hour, five minutes, an hour. With
1: consistency, right? And just giving it the recognition and the value it needs because I think as well... To your point about distraction, people are distracted. There are so many things that can impact and impinge upon the human body, the human mind that aren't necessarily always constructive, that can make people feel extremely unsettled. And doing those little things very, very often on a regular basis can help one recalibrate. I guess as well, this year and a half has been a time of massive change for lots of people. And obviously, Emma, you've had a lot of change in your life. You've experienced a lot of change and you have said change requires some courage. It takes enormous courage to step into the unknown. As we know, many people fear change, although personally, I feel the essence of life implies change. You know, there is change going on all the time, right? Whether it's of our doing or not, that is actually life, perhaps we could say. What would you say to someone who you know, is fearful of navigating uncertainty into the unknown?
0: Well, there are degrees. We have to be wise and skillful with our own being. There are degrees. I think from my experience of talking to people that if people get to a stage of feeling very stuck, either with their own thinking, their own mental habits, or just generally their situation, they feel very disempowered and they feel like they're not really living it's like a state of being half alive if you feel very stuck right and it's very disempowering and so I think this is where you know choosing to do things that you know are helpful for you even if they're little changes they don't have to be big changes but if it gives that feeling that I'm not stuck I'm I'm working with the nature of things things are changing and flowing and I'm also growing and changing and flowing it's just when we have this feeling that the outer world is stuck, and we are stark then things get very tricky I think sometimes big change may be helpful and you you may have the courage to do that but sometimes we just need to make little changes and like right now people are quite stressed with COVID a lot, a lot of the time some people have made radical changes it has you know they've moved to the country they've Change jobs. I don't, you know. I don't know what. I think you have to have some self wisdom, maybe in a quiet time, just to think. Okay, is this a time to make a small change, and if so, what? Is it a time to make a medium sized change, or is it time to make a big change? But for some people, making a big change will give a feeling of fear, and so then right. we respect right. that and make so a medium size change. It's intuition as well, you know? isn't
1: it? Really, sitting with yourself.
0: I think we are. Yeah and if you can i think that usually gives a feeling of trust that you can rely on your own wisdom you know nobody else can quite tell you if the size of the change i think it's good if you can sense it for your for yourself because it also gives you a feeling of trust in your own you know walking down that path that you can be your own best guide and i think that's important because often we look round for find in everybody else, or every book, or whatever, or every teacher, what to do, what to do. Sometimes it's better to be quiet and just think and reflect, and then gently make that change.
1: And Emma, today, in you, you know, in your life, you are um, very active internationally, if I may say. You know, you're an acclaimed author with your best-selling book, Set Free, tells which tells your extraordinary story from, I guess, from banking to Buddhism in some ways. You're a public speaker. You've given an inspirational TED Talk, which has been listened to hundreds of thousands of times. You are a coach. You are running your retreats. And you are the founder and CEO of the charity Opening Your Heart to Bhutan, which works with children with special needs in local communities and empowers those communities. And you've been recognised by the UK Prime Minister with the uh, Point of Light Award for your work. Tell me um, about where you are today and how you bring your original skills. So you're not only um, a financier by training, but you previously post-studying at Cambridge University, um, one of only two first-class honours degrees in fine art awarded at Goldsmiths University of London, the other one being Steve McQueen, no less. How do you bring all that to your work today?
0: Well, making a positive contribution in the world, particularly uh, with the charity, and is a very important to my integrity, my sense of integrity, that I'm not just doing prayers for compassion, but I'm actually taking compassionate action. That has been a very important thing for me personally. And I think that's probably because I didn't feel that it was always easy for me to be kind. It was pretty easy for me to be selfish uh, in the early part of my life to a certain degree. So I think I have gained the greatest kind of internal peace of mind uh, setting up my charity and and helping those children it's been you know very important for me. They think i'm helping them, but it's not really that way
1: that way around
0: or you know it helps me you know i help them it's a kind of a wonderful thing in that way. I do do a lot of things in the in the world right i'm not sure if the next couple of years i'll do so many things in the world you know i've done a uh, I've done quite a lot. I suspect that the next few years will be less like that.
1: Why is that?
0: I have practices to do. You know, I have my meditation practices to do. And, you know, my one of my teachers in Bhutan said, uh, even at the end of the day, something really wonderful like the charity is still involved with worldly activity. So for a monastic a renunciate, then... You have to be very careful around worldly activity, you know, how much you're really involved in it and how much you can skillfully involved in it without uh, your mind getting too excited or too hot or too cold, you know, either. You know. Totally so, I suspect
1: I suspect in your case as well, given your you know, you've probably brought to your work your creative mind you've probably brought your financial acumen right because running a charity is also like running a business in some respects right um so that can engender certain feelings too in a way of, of engagement and involvement and excitement you know because you you did have a very fast in career at a, at a point in your life
0: yeah so i think whilst i am not going into long periods of solitude retreat at this point because uh, of Oscar, et cetera, my son, you know, I think, uh, I suspect the next year or so will be Understood. a little bit more, a little bit quieter. And uh, I'm doing, you know, I do my daily practice. And I've also, strangely enough, you mentioned my art thing. I, I have been doing a few artistic things as well. And um, with the, you know, I've studied Tibetan now quite hard, even though I'm still fairly useless at it, but, you know, splitting mantras, and um, so I may do some creative things around those in a more Beautiful. artistic way. The most important thing, I mean, it's very important to have make a contribution, and it's very important to have a as pure as possible sense of purpose in this life, which is not tinged by anger. And most difficult situations in the world may bring up anger in us. You know, like, I could be very upset that there are children with special needs out there. I could be very upset that there isn't enough medical facilities or, you know, da-da-da-da-da. Like, and I know different people have different responses to this. They see suffering in the world and it makes them very angry. From a monastic point of view, that's not really an option. You know, anger as a response to suffering is not an option, it could be for other people involved in other areas, but for monastics, not an option, right? So it's very good to participate and help in the world, make a contribution, and know how meaningful your life can be in terms of helping others. But there are profound meditation practices which are about understanding not only a stable mind, but the nature of the mind itself. And I. Uh, it's important I have enough time to explore those, so I'm just saying that might be a bit more of the future.
1: Understood, and I think um, you touched on the very big and very important word of purpose. I think today um, in business, certainly, we, mm. and it wasn't the case I think when we started our careers a long time ago, but today in business and on all aspects of life, people talk about purpose underpinning their choices, underpinning their motivations, underpinning, you know, which company they join, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um how can people find their purpose today, in your view?
0: Yeah, I mean there's a there's a quote by Goenka about the Buddhist teacher Goenka, Burmese teacher Goenka about what is right livelihood. And in a way purpose is a little bit like What is right livelihood? What is the way to live rightly in this world? You know, which is one of the eight aspects of the noble path. And he says, if you are uh, taking activity which supports yourself, both supports yourself and is helping others, then you're living in a right way. And so we do have to have that balance, you know, both recognizing that we um, should take care of our own being, in every way uh, physically mentally emotionally spiritually etc and always be helping others and if you can get to the end of the day and think yeah i gently took care of myself today i didn't harm myself with my anger or my speech towards others i didn't harm myself in that way and i helped others then you can rest easy knowing that i mean that is the purpose there is no other purpose you know, if you because sometimes you can search for purpose here, there, and everywhere. But I think for me, anyway, I don't know how it sounds to you, Dee, But in that simple way, I think that provides a clarity in that area.
1: Totally, it's it's what you said is is very beautiful and very simple and very profound. And I think we can overcomplicate and almost have a roadblock because we're we're looking for some bigger story. But it's a it's a life choice. It's a day to day choice, isn't it? It's a minute to minute. Walking down a certain road with a certain approach and a certain philosophy, which is intrinsic to who we are as human beings, it's about you know the inside reflecting the outside as well, you know. And I think there is a lot of I'm I'm a linguist by training, and I think there's a lot of language around sense of self, and there are a lot of um you know what I would call sort of slightly faux self-help concepts out there. But what we're talking about here is something in a way profoundly simple and beautiful, and um much more fundamental in terms of choice about how one lives one's life. And it it reminds me, you know, we do have choices, don't we? Sometimes, you know, we feel we never have a choice, but we do have agency over our own lives and some of the choices that we make which are quite fundamental as to how we live. Emma, um, tell me, today, what is your biggest concern in the world, if there were one?
0: Oh, that we still very easily harm other beings all the time. We don't think it's, I mean, you look across the globe, people are fighting each other, killing each other, killing animals. The basic root of yoga and Buddhism is ahimsa, you know, not to harm. And I think uh, I see that in so many situations there's no understanding that um, just please don't harm, if that was truly taken to heart, then I think many things would be solved that simple way.
1: Do you ever feel um, hopeless about that point? Because it has, in some respects, always been thus. And sometimes the greatest inhumanity, for want of a better word, is humans towards humans. You know, in the animal kingdom, yes, animals will defend themselves or defend their young, but they won't randomly attack one another just for the sake of it. Um and, you know, if we look back historically, we've always had war, we've always had conflict. It doesn't seem to be improving. How does that make you feel more broadly when you look at this as, as a big concern?
0: Uh, it doesn't make me feel hopeless. It does make me wish to be a good example of not being like that, you know, if I can, you know, if it's not easy. I wish there was some global commitment just not to harm, like maybe even just one day, you know, just one day. And there's so many of these days, you know, one day. And then.
1: Wouldn't that be incredible? Like just one day, put arms down, be kind to other people actively.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I love that. So Emma, I'm just conscious of time. So I'm going to ask you one final question. Obviously, you are a teacher to many. And you get asked a lot of questions about big themes in life. What is the subject or the question that you get asked the most? And what is your response to that? Bearing in mind that everyone is different and there are micro shifts depending on the person and so forth.
0: I mean, I think in the West, obviously, I get asked a lot why I have no hair, why I look like this, because there isn't a culture of understanding what is it to be a a Buddhist monastic Right. So in the West, I particularly get asked about, you know, those sorts of things. I definitely get asked about meditation. What is meditation? A lot of people feel they have to apologize to me. Like they say, oh, I, you know, I'm really sorry I tried meditation. It was just really hard. I couldn't do it. I gave it up, you know. So um, that's a, a common question. What is meditation? And like, why is it so difficult? You know, uh, that kind of thing. I think people um, people often find it helpful to share their difficulties. I find people often very easily want to share the difficulties that they've had as a human, you know, just to be listened to. I think that um, I don't know if it's because we're very living very fast or I don't know what, but there is a need to be listened to to share the difficulty of human existence out loud to another being that you feel comfortable around or you feel that they're going to honor your human experience.
1: Beautiful. Emma, thank you so much for taking the time today. Um, It's been very special. It really has, and it's been very special for me on a personal level. Thank you so much, and um, I hope to hear more soon
0: day of harming, a day of non-harming. We had to bring that in. Yes, that
1: will be the really. Seriously, <laughs> we're going to do that. <laughs>
0: okay. Thank you,
1: Emma. Speaking to Emma today has been such a special and unique experience and gave me so much to think about. It made me reflect on how our epiphanies, large and small, can help us find our purpose. Emma's purpose led her to the Buddhist idea of Ahimsa, which means not to harm. I loved her idea of one global day of do not harm, putting down arms and actively being kind in all we do and say and think. As a mother myself, I was very moved by her experiences as a mother, how she talked about it as an enormous, profound, life-changing experience, as a mystery unfolding, which tests strength and patience and the unique way she is balancing her monastic calling and responsibilities with being there for her son. The fact is, even for a Buddhist nun, life continues to be full of change and wonder, full of challenge and balance, full of self-discovery and learning. Emma Slade's epiphany moments might now be gentler, less full of fear and crisis, but she's a sage reminder of the constant need for self-reflection, for always trying to do better, both for ourselves and for others. Thank you, Emma. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on Double Espresso with D. Do connect with me on Instagram at d Double Espresso. I love hearing your feedback and what has resonated with you. And don't forget to join me next week for another amazing guest interview. Until then, au revoir.